0: And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful this is the word of the lord oh god thank you that you are merciful to the ungrateful and the evil because that's how we're gathered here this morning Lord, we just hold out our hearts to you, however feebly and however weakly. We just hold them out, Lord, and we say, come, come, Holy Spirit, help us. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to grapple and wrestle with your words and your truth in your power. Come and have your way. We pray, oh Lord, that you would empower Travis, that we might see and hear him, but Lord, we would see and know you and how he teaches us this morning. So we just ask all of this, Lord, that we might love you as you truly deserve, and know you better, and follow you harder, and give ourselves wholly and completely to you. Help us even to pray that, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good, we're live.
1: Um, thank you, uh, Rachel. Um, I feel like you read my notes before doing the reading there, um, but that's probably for the for the best we uh my name's Travis um, I'm the face that was on the toasty that you saw earlier um, when we were speaking to the youth a little later today um, and I don't know if I'm more nervous to do this or that or how that's supposed to go i've been warned that that our youth are the smartest people that are in the building by multiple people. And so and I'm told they ask really good questions, so that interview is going to be fun. Um, but yeah, we, we are in the middle of a, of a series called To Seek and To Save the Lost. We're looking at the, the um, Gospel of Luke. We're going through Jesus' biography, this historical account of Jesus's life. And we are in the middle of, of a sermon that Jesus is giving called The Sermon on the Plain. Um, this uh, there's a lot of similarities to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount's a little more famous, I think, because Jesus says more, like, more teachings are kind of recorded in that one. Um, and there's a lot of similarities. They are different sermons given at different times, but it's the same teaching. And so what's really kind of important for us to take away is in this sermon, as in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of communicating his sort of core teaching. Like, if you heard Jesus teach at any time, you're probably hearing something from one of these talks, if you ever saw him in his ministry, and so what he's trying to communicate, among many other things, but the main ideas are he's telling us what the kingdom of God is like, and he's telling us what the people of God are to be like. And so that theme, it, this idea of loving our enemies is going to come under that theme. And this is familiar, this passage, I think. I mean, it's got the golden rule kind of nestled up in there. And like, if you talk to anyone about like who is Jesus and what was he teaching, like they're going to they're going to reference this one, I think. Um, and usually they reference it because Christians aren't like this. There's a lot of how it's communicated. Um, and that's fair enough because we're not like this enough. Um, but as we were, as I was reading this passage, there's a lot, a lot of what I'm going to communicate this morning is going to be sort of my responses to this passage I was preparing. Um, a lot of confession for where my heart was at as I was kind of engaging with this myself. Along with that... Um, It's a heavy passage. Like you don't hear Jesus say "love your enemies," and you're like, "Oh, this is good. Like encouraging." Um, You're like, "What are you talking about? Like, how in the world am I supposed to do this?" And so, I think that Tim and I'm a I'm a a, every silver lining has a cloud kind of person. And so, like, I can get kind of dark and heavy anyway. Um, And so, uh, as I was preparing this, I'm like, "Oh, geez, how do we make people are going to check out? Like, it's just going to be like too heavy and tough." And and the more I spent. Time in this passage, the more I began to realize that there's a real encouragement here for us. Um, and so, my hope is yes, that we understand this command that Jesus is giving us. Yes, that we would go do it. But there's a motivation behind it. There's a reason why Jesus is telling us to do this. And that reason is an, inc- an incredible encouragement. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to kind of give you the ending at the beginning here. I, I want us to understand why first. And from the why, I want us to understand and then go do what Jesus is asking us to do. Um, So this passage comes right after what Nathan Brown talked about three weeks ago. If you were here, he was talking about the beatitudes and the woes. And Jesus is going in and saying, you know, blessed are the hungry and blessed are those who weep. And blessed are the poor and blessed are you when people revile you and hate you and do all these things on account of me. And then he kind of gives these woes, which are just the opposite, right? Like, You know, woe to you who are rich and who are full, and woe to you who are um, laughing, and woe to you when people speak well of you, um, because so they did with the false prophets. And so Jesus kind of takes from that the idea of the enemies and then gives us this passage here about loving our enemies. But I say to you, he says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, okay, I think the first natural question is, who, who are our enemies? We live in Northern Ireland. There is a context, especially 30 years ago, where we can culturally go to a place of who the other people are, and, and we can kind of contextualize it like that. I think in this day and age, and I, hopefully there's a little less of that, you know, them and us or whatever, usins. I don't know, I'm American, I'm sorry. Um, but this idea of the other and this animosity towards other people, we prayerfully, we're going away. It's my, I, you know, I, I, think, I think it's happening, right? But there's a context like that, like this, this arch nemesis enemy type. But then, but like, I, I don't have that. Like, I'm reading this and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have a side. I don't have a person. I don't, have an, I, don't, I don't go to work and there's this one person who's a coworker who me and that person are just like always at odds. And so I was like, whenever I don't have an example in my own life that kind of comes to me quick, I just go to like stories that I know, movies, books, whatever, and find like an example that I can kind of relate to. Um, And naturally, I went to one of the great gospel commentaries in narrative form, Harry Potter, um, and and looked looked at it there. And do we have people? If I use this as a reference, are people going to know what I'm talking about? We've seen the movies or read the books. Please, thank you. I went as pop culture as I possibly could, and. Harry Potter, right, if you know the character, right, if you ask the question, who is, who is Harry's enemy? Like, it's Voldemort, right? It's the arch nemesis. It's the person who killed his parents and tried to kill him and then comes back from the dead to try to kill him again. Like, yes, we can relate to that. But if you ask the question, like, if you kind of keep sort of digging in there, we're like, well, who, who, does he have more, is it more than just, like, does he have other, are there other antagonists? Are there other enemies that he's got? And yeah, I mean, there's Draco Malfoy, right? You have the Death Eaters who are like the followers of Voldemort who are trying to kill him. Um, you have uh, the Dursleys, the family that he's a part of or living with. I don't know if he's really a part of, but like they're against him. Professor Snape, Dolores Umbridge. You have all these characters in there that aren't arch, like aren't like the enemy, the arch nemesis, but they kind of, they keep tearing down. And you eventually get to the place if you keep kind of Thinking through it, that like, I mean, even there's even times in the story where Ron and Hermione are at odds with Harry and they're not getting on, they're against each other. And and there's these moments where even in that story, they're enemies. And so, kind of from that example, I want us to I want us to ask the question, okay, who are our enemies? And the definition I want us to work with this morning are: our enemies are whoever we are at odds with at any point in time. So, yes, that can be. This, like, arch nemesis person, coworker, whatever. I don't know if you've got someone like that in your life um, who just, like, we, we've never gotten on. We never are going to get on. It's always going to be like this. Or it's like your kids when they're disobedient, or your spouse or roommate or friend or whatever. Like, when you're having a disagreement and just, like, in this moment, in this, like, half hour of a conversation, you are enemies. And so, what Jesus is saying here applies to the big. Like to those who are, in, to those we're at odds with because of our faith in Jesus. And it applies to the small, to those, like how we treat people, even in these like disagreements. And in all of those contexts, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies. So I'm going to reread the passage here. Um, even though Rachel did an excellent job, thank you so much. But I want to reread it here and I want us to kind of be paying attention I'm I'm try to contextualize a bit of what Jesus is saying. So he goes from the beatitudes and the woes. He introduces the idea of enemies and he says again, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If you were a first century Jew, hearing Jesus say this, what would be happening in your heart and head would... like You'd really struggle to understand what Jesus is trying to say here. Because your understanding of the Old Testament is... What I'll call a law of reciprocity or like reciprocation, right? Like what is done to you, you do back to that person. If someone does good to you, you do good to them. If someone, if someone hurts you or if there's like, you know, or, or whatever, um, or disgraces you or whatever else, you, you then do so to them. Like the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's, it's crime and punishment, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tit for tat, right? Um, and so when Jesus is saying, love your enemies, and then when he gives these specific examples, what is happening, I mean, if I'm putting myself there, what's happening in my own heart is like, yeah, but, no, but, well, then what happens? What, where's the retribution? Where's the vengeance? Where's the punishment? Where's, who makes this right? Like, I, what, this shouldn't be. Um, Tim Keller, when he talks about this whole sermon that Jesus does, he, he calls it the upside-down kingdom. Jesus keeps presenting ideas to the audience and then is talking about the kingdom of heaven is the opposite. And so we even see this in terms—and Jesus also, the examples he gives are kind of foreign to us. Like if someone slaps you, if someone takes your tunic, we're like, what does that mean? Like a, a, a slap was something that a master did to a subservient or a Roman could do to anyone. And it was a public shaming or disgracing of an individual— And Jesus is saying, if they do that to you, offer them your other cheek as well. And the taking of a tunic was something that someone would do to someone who was so poor they couldn't repay a debt, so they would shame them by just taking the clothes off their back. And Jesus says, well, if they do that, give them all of your clothes. Like, he's basically suggesting that, that, that if they take your tunic, just give them your underwear. Like, just go be naked. Like, give even more. He's giving these extreme examples and then even more extreme responses of what it means to love our enemies. If someone takes from you, don't demand it back. Like, it's just such a foreign concept to the mind of a first century Jew. And I think, I would wager, it's a pretty foreign concept to our minds as well. And then he talks about the golden rule, as we wish that others would do, or that as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And it's a new it's a new law of reciprocity that Jesus is introducing. Instead of returning the favor, initiate it. Do to them as you wish they would do to you. And it's funny because Jesus actually doesn't doesn't put a like a tag on the end of it. It's like if do unto them uh as like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and 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 wait and watch their heart turn. Or it's not like some pithy little proverb like Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And where you once had an enemy, now you will have a friend. Like there's no promise of change to your circumstance. It's just the, you do this regardless of the outcome. It's a very extreme but absolute command. And so when we think about this, when you hear Jesus say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, my question for us is how do you respond? Like, as you hear me say those words, what do you think and what do you feel? Because, in the litany of responses I had to it going through this week, my two responses were categorized as either dismissiveness, like I, I find myself perpetually trying to find the excuse or the loophole, or like, I can do this except for these circumstances or I can do it to this degree, but not whatever, right? Like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get that bar as low as possible when Jesus sets it so extremely high. And secondly, my other one, when I kind of came to terms with the fact that Jesus doesn't really allow for that to happen, is like, okay, well, then what do I gotta do? Like, how do, how do I kind of put the effort in? So our responses are dismissiveness and effort, and, and the reality is we can never obey this command responding either of those two ways. If we dismiss it, we're disobedient. If we try to do it in our own effort, we're going to reach the limit of our ability, our emotional energy, our relational capacity, our resources. We can only give so much. And then we'll, and then we'll break. <laughs> we'll get to a place where we just can't do it anymore. But still, Jesus' command remains. And so, I think it's more important because we can talk about and we, were, we will talk about how do I do this? How do I take the command of Jesus and then execute it? But instead, it's more important for us to stand, for us to understand why is Jesus telling us to do this in the first place? And I think when we understand the, the reason why, we'll then understand how, The how kind of flows from, from the why. Um, I asked myself a lot this week going through this passage. How in the world can I ever get to a place where my heart can ever desire to love and bless an enemy the way Jesus is describing here? I imagine, I I would imagine that most of us in this room are kind of asking the same question. Like, this is too idealistic and beyond possible. Like, my, my head was going. Like, this is unreasonable. Like I don't, know. you know. I just like kept going through all these excuses and reasons why. And it, it's, but but in the end, if I desire to obey it, how do I even get to a place where I can? How do I get to a place where my heart desires good for my enemy, where I want to bless, not be nice to, but bless someone who's my enemy. And I think there are there are four motivations that we need to understand to even be able to obey Jesus in the first place. And the final three kind of flow from the first. Um, And so if you are the kind of person that listens to a sermon and you're like, okay, we're still on the first point, the first one's going to take a while. Um, It's the way it is. But it's the most important one. And it's the one I want us to really kind of sit on our hearts. It's the part where I want us to find our encouragement this morning. The first motivation for why we should love people like that why we should love our enemies like that, is because God has been merciful to us. It's right there in the last verse where he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. How has God been merciful to us? He sent his son to die for us while we were enemies of God. We just celebrated Easter, right? We just went through the story of Jesus' triumphal entry and Jesus' last supper where he washes his disciples' feet, one of whom betrayed him to his death loving his enemies, and then his trial where he was silent, where he like, took the disgrace, the strikes on the cheek, the taking away of his clothes. Like, literally the things in this passage all happened to Jesus in those days, like in, from like that Thursday through that Friday up to the point of his death. And Jesus loved us like this. The other part that's important for us to understand is not that Jesus loved his enemies like this, but that we are his enemies. Does that make sense? Like, I think we can read these stories and be, and, and as a... As a we, read, we, we, read, we read the story of Easter as someone sitting in a cinema watching a movie. And we're like, oh, that's really interesting. And oh, man, they're really bad. And, oh, he's really good. And you kind of like are just outside of the picture. And if we put ourselves into the Easter story... The reality is, A, we're not Jesus in that story. And if you are any other character in that story, you don't come out looking very good. At best, you're a disciple who ran away and abandoned him. And at worst, you're Judas or you're a religious leader or you're shouting to crucify him in the crowd, right? Um, What's that one song, the line in it? Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That's every single one of us. And so when we do this, there's a gravity to to the Easter story that happens when we see ourselves mocking as the person mocking Jesus on the cross and him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's a gravity to the gospel and to the Easter story where we see ourselves as Judas, and we put ourselves in the moment of Jesus washing our feet. Jesus loved us as his enemies in the way he, did. like he's not, his command to love our enemies is nothing that he didn't do himself. Have you ever considered that before? Like that you were an enemy of God? Or have you just been like, oh, well, I was just like indifferent to the gospel. I didn't really, you know, like there's like a, there's like a nicer version of our lives before Christ that, that aren't as antagonistic or against God or opposed to God or, or any of those things. But when we put ourselves in the Easter story, we see that while we hated Jesus, he did good to us. And when we cursed him, he blessed us. And when we abused him, he prayed for us. And when we struck his cheek and took his clothes and begged from him and took from him, even taking his life from him, he loved us. And when we understand that, that bar of love your enemies that feels so high feels a whole lot lower because of the love that we've received how do we love our enemies we can love our enemies because that is how God loved us through Christ we are to be merciful as our father in heaven is merciful he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil so even when I started understanding all this I was like oh man that's such a heavy but good thing and it's an encouraging thing that God loved us like this I still wanted to object (laughs) I can still feel my heart being like, okay, but what about my rights and my dignity? Like, you're, t- you're saying that if someone shames me publicly, I should just take it. If someone abuses their power and position over me, I should let it happen. I should pray for them. Like, what are you, how in the, like, what are you talking about? And yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is the single most entitled person in the history of humanity. And I don't mean that in the negative way that we think about entitlement today. I mean that in the way that everything anyone could ever possibly deserve, Jesus deserves because of who he is. And all of that, he set aside to love us, his enemies. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who, though he was in the, very, who, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How in the world can I object to Jesus' command because of my own rights when Jesus, who is the most, who had more rights than anyone, did not have to do anything he did, set all of those aside to love me? My other objection was what about justice? What about, like, it seems that Jesus is telling us to just, like, allow these things, allow these injustices and wrongs to just happen. Um, that they shouldn't be... I, I kept using the word punish, but the more I looked at my own heart, really it was vengeance and retribution that I cared about, <laughs> not justice. Um, but, yeah, we, we have within us a desire... And and the thing that can be complicated is it's a holy desire for righteous justice to happen. Like, I can be desiring righteous justice to happen in these situations. And the reality is, our position is not to be the judge or the executors of justice in any situation. And the reason I know this is because in verse 37 of Luke, right after he says, Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful, he says... Judge not. Jesus knows what we're thinking. And so as as I'm wrestling with the command to love my enemies, and as in my own heart, I'm like, yeah, but who's going to make this right? Jesus is like, it's not your job. It's mine. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Like, we are meant to leave judgment and retribution and punishment, all those things to God. And there's a few reasons why. Reason number one is... We can never be a truly just judge. And the reason why we can't is because we do not know men's hearts. We struggle enough to just know what's going on in our own heart. We can't know what's going on in the hearts of other people. Only God does. And so, if ever in a moment there's a moment of confession and repentance, God offers mercy in a way that we can never know and probably wouldn't ever trust if someone says you know like try, comes to a point of confession and repentance God and God alone is the only just judge he is the only just judge cuz all of his judgments are right and just and true God only God knows the heart and secondly the reason why we're not to be the executors of justice is because every wrong ever done every sin ever committed every injustice that's ever happened has already been punished either on the cross or will be punished in hell and for us to desire to add to that is for us to say that neither one of those is enough for those who don't know Jesus the judgment that the bible says will happen in front of god and then in eternity in hell is enough it's enough it is a just judgment and for those of us who are in christ what has happened what Christ took on for us on the cross is enough. Is enough punishment. We cannot add to that. What Jesus is asking us to do, like I said before, is is what he, sorry, Jesus is not asking us to do what he has not already done himself. And he has loved us as his enemy better, more completely, and more extremely than you or I can ever love our enemies. In Romans chapter 5, Um, starting in verse 5, Paul kind of expounds on this idea. He says this, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given us, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And I love what Paul says here. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Right? You see what he's saying? He's like, no one dies for people, ever, under any circumstance. Even for good people, it's a rarity. But God shows his love for us, his enemies, in this, while we were still sin- in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now, that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life i i feel like i'm belaboring the point a little bit and maybe it's necessary hopefully it's not i hope it's kind of sinking in but there is a reality i i know in my own heart in my own heart i haven't meditated on this idea enough i don't understand enough what it means to have been an enemy of god and what that looked like and what it means for God to love me in the midst of that. But the more I have, even this week in studying this passage, the more I come to the, back to the command of loving my enemies and the question of how in the world can I even possibly, with, not only with a, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense, I can actually do that, but almost with a, a, like, a, like a proactive desire to do it, to love people how I've been loved. And Paul says it here in verse 5 when he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. The love that God has shown us as enemies, that same love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Like he has given us the motivation, the same type of love, and the, the ability through the Holy Spirit to be able to love as he's loved us. God's love is amazing. I can always say that but God's love for us is amazing. I really hope that there's, a, I mean, like I said, there's an encouragement to be taken from here. But the love that you thought, like how amazing you thought God's love was, it's, it actually is more amazing than that. It's more spectacular. It's more extreme. It's more, it's just, it's just more than you can possibly understand. Than I can understand. But understanding How God has loved us while we were his enemies motivates us to love our enemies. Motivates us to come to a patch like that and be like, oh, that's why. That's reason number one. Like I said, it's a long one, but there it is. We'll move a little faster. Number two, the second motivation. Jesus says in verse 35 um, of Luke, love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. The second motivation is we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God by loving our enemies. We don't achieve, and I want to say real quick, we don't like, achieve our sonship as sons and daughters by doing this. We just show it. Does that make sense? Like, like we, we, we are sons and daughters of God only because of what Christ did on the cross. I hope that's understood by Point number one, right? Like that—that that alone is all that makes us right with God and a member of His family and a participant of the Kingdom of God. But we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God because by loving our enemies, because what it shows is that we understand, we've experienced that love, and we can communicate that love to other people. I don't know. We have we have a lot of growing families in the church, right? We're just people. Are, we most recently are the adding to these to the kids ministry here. Um, but the thing I love about kids is when you can look at them and you're like, oh, I see like their mom or dad in that, right? Like I can't not look at Esther and not see Tim's face. It's impossible. I can't, I can't unsee it. It's, it's just, you know, you, there's no mistaking who her dad is because they're the exact same person. Same with me and um, our, our second son, Callum. We, we both do the same thing and it's completely untaught. But like whenever I was a kid and I still do it now and I'm like focused and concentrated, I always stick my tongue out every time. It, I don't know what it is. It's just—it's like a force of habit, and I do it. And ever since he was able to start, I mean, from from like the time he could do anything that required concentration, um, his tongue would—he sticks his tongue out. He was doing it this morning when he was coloring in the front. So I looked at him, I was like, "There he is," you know, you know, doodling away. And I was like, "Ah, oh, that's my kid. That's that's my boy," you know, like. Um, but but we w- that same way people can see that that we are children of God when we love our enemies. The third motivation, okay, is that the gospel changes people's hearts. Loving our enemies is how we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God. That's great. The third point up on the screen is that we, the gospel changes people's hearts. It is, loving our enemies is one of perhaps, it, it, might, it may perhaps be the most Practical, tangible, experiential way we can communicate the gospel to another human being. We can we we do go, we we do evangelism trainings on like how to share your faith and whatever and like here's the words to use and how to convince people and apologetics and all these kind of things and they're great and they're good and they're true and right and godly and all that stuff. But in terms of giving someone the experience of like to just like understand experientially what the gospel is, the best. One of the best ways, if not the best way, is to love them when they're an enemy. And when, we, and, and when we do, we're communicating the gospel to someone, and the gospel has the power to change someone's life. Like, loving your enemies is evangelism. It's communicating the gospel. We know this because we, as followers of Jesus, have experienced this exact same love and it changed our hearts. And we know that that love can change other people. And there's no guarantee that it will, right? Again, Jesus didn't give us these commands and say, when you do, everyone's going to come to know Jesus. Everyone's going to repent. They're going to ask for your forgiveness. He didn't make any of those promises. But, but it could happen. It can happen. It can change someone's life forever. In verses 32, 32 through 35, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to get back the same amount. And as I read that, I was like, okay, Jesus, what benefit is it to me to not? How does it benefit me to love those who hate me? How does it benefit me to to do good to those who do evil to me or to give to those who only take? How does that benefit me? If you're going to frame this argument in terms of benefit, what's in it for me to do the opposite? And the reality is, from a worldly perspective, none. There is zero benefit to doing that. But because we know what the gospel can do to someone's life, there is every benefit. We have been blessed beyond measure because we have been the recipients of love as enemies. And to be able to give that same love to other enemies, we have the potential, the ability to bless them in the exact same way. Does that make sense? That's the benefit. We've are, as followers of God, we've already benefited more than any earthly benefit of, of praise or acclaim or possessions or anything, right? Like anything, what we have received in and through Christ is beyond all of that. We have been, we've already have benefited because Jesus loved us when we hated him and did good to us when we did evil to him and blessed us when we cursed him and all these things, right? Um, and so we can bless other people in the same way. I, I uh, there's a quick story. I, I have a good friend who I haven't spoken to in a long time because he went to go do neurosurgery and has just vanished. I, I think he just lives in a lab now, basically. But um, I, I, his name's Jim. He, I knew him since secondary school, freshman year, um, or first year, or whatever we were, Fourteen, fifteen at the time when I met him, and he's a great guy, lifelong friend, um, but just a red in the face, just atheist-like, science-y, whatever kind of person. And so we were friends in every context of our relationship, except when it came to faith. And when it came to faith, he was a giant butt, like really, like just mean, aggressive, like. J- Insulting. I mean, he, it wasn't like a just like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. It was like, you're an idiot. Like anyone who believes this is stupid. Like I think less of you because you think this. Um, and so naturally, I had those conversations less and less often with him because that was an experience I really enjoyed. But um, but throughout our relationship, we were just these. Moments, I can I can remember all these moments of just having the conversation, having the conversation. There's a moment where Jesus, like, I just remember being convicted in my quiet time, that like I need to just tell him my testimony and tell him the gospel and just tell him that like I want you to believe this and you can, I just want to, to have to explained it to you completely one time. Um, we had the conversation. He didn't become a Christian. Like, I was expecting it to happen that night. Didn't happen. Whatever. Um, and so we, we were friends seven years. And then one night, it was midnight. We were in the library studying for some engineering exam. And he was like, oh, hey, I meant to tell you I became a Christian this week and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I need you to explain. Tell me, I don't, I, help me understand. And so he's like, oh yeah, well, like, I don't know. I just was kind of sitting at home thinking about everything that we've talked about over the years. And it was like, I think I believe it again, please. I need you to elaborate, please. And so I, I basically asked him like, why, what convinced you? He's always seen, he's been sciencey. he's a real kind of like, you know, logic-y, reasoning type of person or whatever. And so I was like, what convinced you? What was the, what clicked? How did it happen? He's like, you know, to be honest, if I think about it, I think about like, you know, the story of Jonah and like all these things, like it's still, I don't know, it still doesn't make any sense and it's really hard to be like that's true. But what convinced me is, you, a friend of mine named Corey, some other just Christian friends from my circle that had gotten to know him, all of you, um. believe this you told me about it, you told me you want me to believe it because you care about me and I told all of you, you were stupid and dumb and whatever and way more colorful things than that over the years and none of you left you all still loved me, you all stayed to my friends and kept saying it and no one does that and so I was like, wow, okay, cool. And it's just like this picture of love and kindness tangibly shown that's changed someone's life. And I think it's really important. The fourth reason, and this one's going to be quick, is that Jesus says that we will be rewarded in heaven. And the only comment I want to make on this is, we often, I I mean, if if you're like me, you just read, there's rewards in heaven, you just kind of read right over it. Um, And the only context I ever hear it talked about is in this Christian bubbly subculture, you like, I did a good thing, like, oh, treasures in heaven, you know, jewels in the crown, right? Like you clean up after an event, and people are like, oh, you know, treasures in heaven. Um, and it's stupid, and it really minimizes something that's actually really important. Like Jesus talks about rewards that we're gonna receive in eternity a lot. Like a lot. And I don't know, I'm not gonna get too much into what it's gonna look like or whatever else, but I just want you to think about something. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, if we love our enemies, there's gonna be a day. In eternity, where we're going to stand before God himself with Jesus at his right hand, and we're going to be rewarded and commended by God for doing this. And you can let your imagination think whatever you want of what that's going to look like. It's going to be awesome, regardless of whatever you can conceive. And so I think it's really, I just, I just don't want to breeze over that idea. Like, it's not selfish to, to love your enemies, to be... Commended by God and to get a reward. It's a, there's a reason why Jesus talks about rewards a lot. Like it's okay to be reward, you know, for God to reward us for doing these things. And it, it's going to be really cool for that to happen to us one day. So those are the four motivations. We are to love our enemies because God himself has loved us while we were his enemies. We're to be merciful as he's been merciful towards us. Number two, we're to love our enemies because we are sons and daughters of the Most High and when, we, and when we do, we look like our Father in Heaven. We're to love our enemies because it's, we have been the recipients of God's gracious love tangibly shown and we can tangibly show that gracious love to others when we do love them. And number four, when we love our enemies, God will commend and reward us. So how, right? That's the motivation, But how are we meant to do this? I think there's three ways. We're meant to to love our enemies prayerfully. We're meant to pray. Jesus says we're meant to pray for them. But we're meant to pray about how we ought to love them. And the reason why is loving your enemies can be complicated. Loving your enemies can mean giving, and it can mean withholding. It can mean drawing near, and it can mean creating distance. There are situations, in your I mean, when I ask the question of like who your enemies are, you might have gone to someone who is abusive, or someone who has committed a crime against you. Like I've read stories of Christian uh, men and women who have lost sons and daughters, like to either like like a, you know, a drunk driver or someone who's killed them, like actual murder, rape, real bad, you know, versions of that story, and. And loving their enemies didn't look like, well, we're not gonna press charges. It, it, it looked like giving testimony to what happened and going to court and all those things. And in those moments also saying, I forgive you for what happened. Like there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. There's a difference between forgiveness and safety. Like we're, Jesus isn't saying, oh, someone abuses you. You're meant to stay in that relationship And continue to take it and be there and love them. That's not what Jesus is saying. And so there is wisdom and discernment that's necessary, and that's why we pray. Secondly, there is power from the Holy Spirit to be able to do it, and that's why we pray. So we love our enemies prayerfully. Number two, we love our enemies honestly. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier our hearts will forever want to object to the idea of loving our enemies because we want justice. And we want retribution and we want vengeance. and We don't want to do a hard thing. <laughs> um, and so when we think about loving our enemies and we think about how we're treating them and we think about how we're responding to them, we need to be honest with ourselves and what's going on in our own heart. We need to be asking questions like, am I responding begrudgingly or vindictively or half-heartedly? Or am I responding mercifully and forgivingly and graciously? Am I seeking to love and to bless my enemies? And finally, we're meant to love our enemies generously. In every example Jesus gives, he is encouraging us to give more than even what is being demanded from or taken from us. And I'm just going to simplify that idea, but like there is meant to be a generosity in how we treat our enemies because there's been a generosity to us. We've received mercy from God, but we've also received grace. The difference between mercy and grace are mercy is like the forgiveness like, the wrong isn't punished, basically, right? Like, uh, there's, the, there's the story Jesus tells of um, the, the man who was indebted to his master, and he forgives the debt, and then he goes and demands just a small amount from, uh, of a debt that he's owed from someone else and is unforgiving. Like, that's a picture of mercy, right? The forgiveness of a debt, the forgiveness of a wrongdoing. Grace is undeserved blessing and favor. is giving to someone who doesn't deserve. And so when Jesus tells us to be generous toward our enemies, he is, he is encouraging us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful, but also to be gracious, to be blessing someone who does not deserve it. And again, it's because that's how God, is. God in Christ has loved us. I want to close with a quick example. A, a pastor friend of mine did a, did a sermon on this. Um, he was actually my pastor a few years ago. And um, he, uh, he tells the story of, of this town that was pretty conservative in terms of politics and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. Lots of churches, right? Kind of like Belfast um, on every corner. And there was a strip club opening up in town. And everyone was like just totally put off by it and objected to it and picketed about it and campaigned for it and leafleted it and all sorts of stuff. Like the, the church, kind of universal in town in general, Responded with like, we don't want this. This is bad, sin, shame, you know, all this stuff. Um, and it happened anyway because legally it could. And the person opened the strip club, and these women started working there. And there it was. One church didn't respond that way. One church um, asked themselves the question, how do we, how do, how do we, how do we love and bless these people who are now here in our town? And so they. Got to know the the women and employees that were working there um, and the owner and asked like how can we love and bless you guys Um, they started after school programs for the kids or for the kids of the women who worked there most of whom were single moms as a means to like care for do tutoring whatever else Um, different women's ministry type things started happening they just started doing all these things to love and bless those people and there wasn't an agenda that they had to become church members to receive any of these benefits or anything like that. It was, just, it was just generosity. It was just blessing. And over time, there were lots of people who were affiliated with the strip club who ended up coming to know Jesus, quitting the job, doing whatever. And in time, it closed because there was no business and no employees. Um, but it wasn't because of like this... like strategy to try to undermine it like i think that church would have been happy if that place not happy but if that place stayed open forever they would have continued to love and bless them because that's what god tells us to do and so when we consider in our own lives as a community but also as individuals how should we love our neighbors i want you to think about and again return to the idea of like well how has god loved me and how can I love people like that? Um, maybe this was heavier than, it's still heavy anyway, I don't know. That's the way it goes. Um, it is a hard command. It's a heavy one. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because it's, to be the recipients of that love is big. And then to be commanded to love like that is big. Um, we're getting ready to take communion here. And this is a picture of that big love that God um Shown us when we do communion, I think Elder says a lot. We we say like on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he took the bread and that other stuff. And I think we kind of like bypass like the night he was betrayed part. Like even in the first Lord's Supper is a picture of loving your enemies, and the washing of Judas's feet and really all the disciples' feet because they all left them, It's a like a, like within hours. It's a picture of loving your enemies. And then in that, Jesus takes the cup and the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. As an example to show what was going to happen a day later where his body was literally broken and his blood was literally shed for us. And so... This picture is—it's just so I just—I mean, communion's great every week because it's a great picture of whatever we talked about. It's the way it works, but it's especially good I think this week because it's such a picture of how God has loved us while we were His enemies. And so, what we're going to do, as we do most weeks, we're going to have people come up and come and take the elements. We're going to take them back to our seats. Um, Amy will be playing, and as as all that happens, I want you to just take a moment before. You eat the bread and drink the wine to remember how God has loved you, to meditate on a little bit, just a little bit of how God has loved you while we, while, while we were an enemy of him. Um, if you are not a believer, this, 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 is, this is for people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus that we do here. If you're not, we just kind of ask you to not take, take uh, communion with us. Instead, really just encourage you to receive Jesus instead um, because that's what this represents anyway. Um, and so I'm going to pray for so quick and Amy's going to come up and we're going to take communion together God, thank you your love is amazing um, and we don't deserve it at all um, and God, I pray I, I mean, I, I even kind of gave this sermon in the midst of still not feeling like I fully get it um, I think there's just more that I need to understand about my life before you and who I was without you and before you and the reality of the love that you showed me even in the midst of that. Um, God, as we consider the command to love our enemies, I pray that our motivation for loving our enemies would not be effort, would not be, would not be because we're commanded to or because it's a great thing to do or anything like that. It would be an outflowing of the love that we have received from you, that we would just be merciful as our Father in Heaven is merciful and has been merciful towards us. And so God, as we take the bread and the wine and we eat it and we drink it and we remember your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection from the dead and what that means for us, um, God, remember that it is just the ultimate picture of love for us. God, we love you. As we worship now and we take communion, God, I pray that the words we sing um, would be a delight to your ears and that this communion would be a reminder to our own
0: souls of the love you have for us.